I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about regional inequality and economic concentration in America, we have with us today Alec McGillis, star reporter at ProPublica and author of the incredibly fascinating new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, which hit stores and electrons March 16th. Alec, I've already torn through this book, the excerpts, everything. I can't put it down. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So I wanted to ask you first, you know, what made you set out to do a book like this? This book goes back a long ways. I mean, it, it probably even goes back to my upbringing in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, a former GE town in the very western end of the state that was once a thriving middle-class city that has really been really fallen back because of the departure of GE and, and has been left also with all sorts of PCBs to deal with. But the, the city's now just light years behind Boston in the eastern, you know, metro Boston in terms of its uh, income and prosperity and, and all that. And you just, I, I felt that so keenly kind of watching that over the years, watching that happen. And then I, you know, I got to Washington as a reporter at the Washington Post and in right around in, in the, the Great Recession years was spending a lot of time reporting around the country, covering the Obama campaign and other stories around the country, lots of in the Midwest and just became really alarmed and just flabbergasted by the gap that I saw between how things were going out in these Midwestern cities and towns and then back in Washington where the Great Recession barely even nicked DC. I mean if anything, DC, you know, got even wealthier in those years because a lot of the stimulus money kind of stayed there. And and it was just seeing that gap, that disconnect and how much it was affecting our politics because there, there was such a lack of awareness in Washington, you know, in the Obama administration and, and more generally about just how rough things were out there because things were going so well in DC and that gap really bothered me. And then I came to think even more about the gap these last few years because, because I moved back to Baltimore and and seeing just that, the, the gap in those terms between two cities that are just 40 miles apart and growing ever and ever further apart in terms of their prosperity and their prospects to the point where now if you travel between them, it's just, it's almost dizzying, the difference in kind of atmospheric pressure between them. And so I, I've been thinking a lot about this problem, this problem of regional inequality, and then Trump got elected. And after that happened, I knew I was going to have to write a book about this because it was so clear to me that 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 huge event was based partly in this problem of regional divergence and the resentment that it causes. And and so I decided to write a book on it. The question then was just how to go about it, how to frame it, because there's so many ways you could come at it. And what I finally settled on after about a year of of various you know discussions and deliberations was to come at it through Amazon, to use Amazon as a frame. And, and to use Amazon as a frame for two different reasons. One, the company is so ubiquitous now that it simply serves as a good thread to take you around the country because it's just sort of everywhere and it's just a very handy way to kind of 
look at what we're becoming as a country. But then secondly, because Amazon itself is is a cause and a contributor to the problem of regional inequality because it because regional equality is linked to economic concentration. And so the company works very well as a frame um, for both both those reasons. Listeners of this podcast know that I'm a huge Baltimore Orioles fan and a huge Baltimore Ravens fan. And what they might not know is that I've spent my entire life sort of going back and forth between the DC metropolitan area where I grew up and Baltimore, which is like my spiritual home where my grandfather worked and, you know, kind of a place that really feels deeply soulful to me and my family. I've experienced the same kind of the same feelings that you've written about and you've felt in that, you know, DC where I live is part of this incredible success story where you know, me and all my neighbors have benefited from the prosperity of, of Washington and all it's had to offer from, you know, those of us who have been highly educated and, and, you know, highly employable and done really well. And then going up to Baltimore and experiencing, you know, some of the real horrors, despite Baltimore having one of the greatest universities in the world, one of the greatest hospitals in the United States, if not the greatest hospital in the United States, and being a, a, a really cool place that used to lead the United States in things like, you know, manufacturing. And what you've written about is really kind of a heartbreaking story because you you talk about what it's like to take a train out of Washington where everything's booming and and there's glass and concrete everywhere and prosperity everywhere and and a hubbub. And then you, you pull into Baltimore and there's this emptiness and there's people, you know, sitting on the streets, you know, black and white and, you know, all different ages, you know, snorting drugs out of their hands and, you know, just really desolate. How does the regional equality help us understand our country and what it's becoming? It's, it's just, it's really just at the, at the core. I mean, it's, we've always had richer and poorer places in this country, of course, but the gap has just gotten way bigger and it's, just as the income inequality gap that we talk so much about has gotten bigger, you know, the 1% and the 99%, the gap between places has gotten so much bigger. There was a couple of t- different ways of sort of quantifying this. One is that back in just in 1980, there were only few parts of our country where where the median income was more than 20% above the national average or below 20%, below the national average. Most most of our country was sort of within that band, right around the average. Now there's huge swaths of the country that have fallen below 20% or above 20%. There's just a, a great gro- growth at the extremes, at the poles. And, and then another way of looking at it is that the, this one, this one kind of blows my mind, the 25 wealthiest cities in the country by median income back in the 1960s, in the mid-60s, included all sorts of cities in the Midwest, among them Milwaukee, Cleveland, Des Moines, and my favorite, Rockford, Illinois. We're in the top 25. You go to Rockford now and it breaks your heart. I've been to Rockford and it breaks your heart. And now, flash forward to today, and only a small handful of the top 25 cities are not on the coast. They're almost all on the coast. Minneapolis and a few others in the middle of the country still make the cut, but they're almost all on the coast. So we've had this growing divergence between cities. And the key is that it's not just urban-rural. We talk a lot about the urban-rural gap. And the urban-rural gap is very important. And it makes up a whole chapter in my book based in Appalachian, Southeast Ohio. But it's really about cities too. And it's about it's about cities like Baltimore that have just fallen so far behind this small set of, of what I call winner take all cities, rich get richer cities, where the where where instead of you'd think that there would be 
some kind of a rebalancing that would happen because the, the, the winner-take-all cities have gotten so expensive, so congested, so kind of hyper-prosperous that you think that there'd be some kind of evening out where things would kind of seek a new level kind of, but that hasn't happened. And, it's, and it hasn't happened for a couple of reasons that have a lot to do with the tech economy now. And the key thing about all this is that this is not just bad for the left behind cities. You know, obviously for them, it's, it's terrible. They're dealing with blight and abandonment and depopulation and despair and and real sense of you know lack of direction and prospects but it's also bad for the winner take all cities that are dealing with these terrible this terrible crisis in housing affordability dystopian levels of inequality within their cities terrible congestion and 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 one of the things that kind of really kind of confounds me about this is that you have these conversations, these endless conversations in the winner-take-all cities about what to do about the housing affordability problem, which is causing such terrible displacement of longtime residents. You know, Washington, D.C., 20,000 Black residents displaced in the last decade or two. And you have these, these whole debates in these cities between well, should we build more housing supply in these cities, even 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 if it's going to make some neighbors upset, or should we, you know, control the rents more? You know, which approach should we take to our affordability crisis? And it's this whole long fight sort of within the left in these cities. And what's missed in that is that there wouldn't be as much of a problem to begin with if there weren't so so much wealth and prosperity concentrated in a handful of places. The fact that, to put it very bluntly, the fact that we are knocking down block after block, hundreds, thousands of row homes in Baltimore, as we speak, are being demolished. While just 40 miles down the road, those same homes, you know, their counterparts in, in DC are going for seven, $800,000, if not more, is madness. That imbalance is madness. And it just speaks to something that's deeply off kilter in our country. And, and oftentimes using, you know, reclaimed historic bricks in Baltimore that they're knocking down to build up new complexes in Washington to make it look like it has a vintage feel. Exactly. That was one of the most heartbreaking moments in my in my reporting of this book was A, watching the demolitions happen in East Baltimore, just seeing these, you know, 120-year-old homes just just smashed, smashed down, brought down. And actually while I was at one of these demolition sites, I was I watched as a whole a crew of four or five young men was 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 selling drugs like literally like 10 feet away from the crew that was doing the demolitions like completely blithely completely openly you know selling to guys to, to cars that were pulling up to to make their buys hand-to-hand buys from them so that's at one end and then at the other end you have there's a there's a nonprofit here in town that for some years has been trying to reclaim some of these bricks Baltimore was known for having really really nice bricks and they have some value and if you can you know re- reclaim them and clean them up and and so this this organization takes some of these bricks finds men who need jobs a lot of these guys come, are coming out of the prison system and puts them to work cleaning the bricks. And then the organization sells them for reuse elsewhere. And a lot of the bricks get sold down in Washington, where you have this huge demand for for all these new kind of condo redevelopment projects, new construction projects that want to give a veneer of a historic veneer to their projects. And they are using Baltimore bricks. And of course, the people living in these condos who are going for, you know, five or six or $700,000 units have no idea that the bricks are actually not from DC. They're from Baltimore. And, and I went down with the guy who runs this organization one time to check check on one of his projects. And 
and we stood in front of a large wall in the, this condo project, which is called Chapman Stables. It's on the site of a former stables, but that's, you know, there's very little sort of historic element to the actual building. So they had to bring in these, these, these bricks from Baltimore. And Max Pollock, that's his name, stood in front of this large wall, and he was able to point to different rows of bricks in this wall and identify which came from which street in Baltimore, in East Baltimore. Wow. It was utterly chilling, like being able to pinpoint down to the block where this facade, this facade in Washington had come from in Baltimore. That's incredible. And this is all, you know, so things in Washington can look more like Camden Yards and some of the beautiful things in Baltimore. And, you know, Washington doesn't have that kind of history or it doesn't have that kind of history preserved. It just has much less of it because it was not, let's face it, it was not a manufacturing industrial kind of brick city the way that um, the yeah. way that Baltimore and, you know, say Philadelphia were. It, it, was, it was always more of a government city and a city and a kind of a concrete city. Right. And so, you know, here we are with this, you know, massive imbalance. And it's not just Baltimore and D.C., as you point out. It's, it's all over the country. What is this growing imbalance of wealth done to the U.S. and to our politics and to the psyche, the collective psyche of America? You know, you've you've spent a lot of time talking to people who have been affected by this and you tell some of their stories in this book so vividly. You know, one guy, you know, who used to make $170,000 a year in Silicon Valley is now living in his basement in Denver because he had to relocate because he lost the job and is now working, making cardboard boxes for Amazon and is making $15 an hour or something, I think. Even less. Yeah. Yeah. Or even less. Yeah. It's just really a different, you know, what has this done? It's just, it's had a huge effect on our politics. We can obviously argue all day about how Donald Trump got elected, but there's no question that it is rooted partly in what has happened to, to places in our country, to this regional inequality. The sense you have when you're in these left behind towns and cities, many of which used to be heavily democratic, that you have been left behind and that the place that you knew, that your parents knew, that your grandparents knew, that was a place that was much more vital and stable and and full, you know, full of life and and activity and 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 just a place that just had a had a fullness of life back when you were growing up or when your parents were growing up. And you've heard about that, you knew about it. You've seen pictures of it. You've heard stories about it. And now you look around and it's just gone. But you, but you see this sort of like ghosts of it and, and traces of it everywhere, you know, on, on the abandoned main, main street or in the crumbling Victorians that the plant managers used to live in. And, and then you look to, you see these cities that are just dazzling, that are just like overflowing with, with wealth and prosperity. And you not only do you see these cities and feel, you know, resentment over that, but you also know that those cities are, are now the base of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is simply a fact. It's now dominated by upper middle class urban professionals, highly educated urban professionals, some of whom were Republicans until not that long ago. But there's but there's been a realignment in the parties that to a degree that hasn't, I really think it has not been fully accepted by many, and it's not been accepted by many Democrats, just how much the party has has realigned in that regard. And if you're in one of these small towns or cities that used to be Democratic, you look to what the party is now and who and who sort of dominates it, and you just feel, you definitely feel like you're not one of them. You 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 can sense that they're different than you. They just are, and and you start you start to drift politically. And and part of what happened, you know, with, with Donald Trump was was that you saw an acceleration of that drift. It had been happening in various places for some time, 
before Trump, but he definitely celebrated it. You know, the, the way I put it in the book is that that kind of economic decline and resentment does not excuse racism and xenophobia, the things that, that Trump was tapping into. It weaponizes it and makes people more vulnerable to it. So it's not a question, I find, you know, the whole debate about was it one or the other thing? Was it economic distress or racism? It's not one or the other. They're, they're inextricably linked. And so, you know, it goes beyond just the sort of electoral politics. It's also the fact that we're just, we become strangers to each other because our worlds become so completely different. We've become incomprehensible to each other. It's hard to even talk about our national problems because the problems are so different in different places. You know, something like the, like the opioid epidemic, for instance, was, was such a huge devastating issue in certain parts of the country these last few years, but it was barely present in the precincts of, of, of sort of our upper echelons. Something like, how, again, the housing issue is completely, it's a completely different issue in different places. You know, in some places, it's all, it's all about cost and gentrification and, and affordability and lack of supply. And then in the other places, it's all about oversupply and blight and abandonment. And so it's just, it's just hard to, you know, address our major issues or major national problems when we actually increasingly have so little in common when the actual problems of problems themselves are, are just so vastly different. Well, that, that's a really good point. I kind of think about it like this in, in terms like this a lot that, you know, people who live in big cities, the cities that have won, who are doing well, you know, their problems tend to be, how am I going to afford the $50,000 tuition for both of my kids to send them to high school, forgetting about college. Right, right. And, they, and that's that's their biggest problem versus the person who lives, you know, in Akron, Ohio, whose problems may consist of, you know, I, I just need to find a job that's going to pay me $10, $15 an hour so I don't have to go into a shelter with my family. And, and increasingly, you know, that's the story. It's such an incredible gulf, and you know, and one of my one of my goals with this the book, and but also with a lot of my articles, actually, has been to to kind of to to move between the worlds as much as possible, and and to really kind of draw the connections between them, and to in a sense to kind of show show the people in the one world what's happening in the other. Um, I've really kind of seen that as as one of my great missions um, because the bubbles have gotten so bad that people become complete strangers to each other and to the point of caricature. I mean, I, I had an article that came out just a week or two ago that was set in a conservative town in Southeast New Mexico. And it had to do with the whole issue of how young people are faring in the pandemic. And it was a county that voted 79% for Donald Trump. And people there have been really struggling because New Mexico has had very, very stringent restrictions on for COVID, very stringent lockdowns, including schools and school sports and all that. And one of my goals with that piece was to show readers in sort of blue precincts that these people in New Mexico who were really hurting because they were really worried about their kids' mental health and their kids' emotional well-being were not necessarily being completely irrational and completely irresponsible in some kind of caricature way in their desire to loosen some of the, the strictures upon them. And, and, I, and I saw that piece, like my book, as partly an attempt to just bring home the common humanity, which does exist to a level that I think that we often in our sort of blue precincts are have 
too often kind of overlook. How do you think this all got to such an extreme? I mean, you, you mentioned the you know dystopian cities, and you know San Francisco is certainly the poster child for that. I mean, I don't think DC's quite gotten there yet, but you can see how it's going in that direction. How did it get so bad, so extreme? Well. The book argues, well, or implicitly argues that the book is not an argument book, but it, what it leaves you with is the sense that a big reason things have gotten so bad in this regard is that we've dropped the ball on monopoly and antitrust in our country. You know, to put it crudely, there are two reasons that that you have this winner-take-all effect where it's rich get richer in, in terms of our economic geography. One is just is the the sort of inherent nature of the tech economy, where which it has an agglomerating effect, as the as the economists like to say, the urban theorists say. There's something about the tech economy that encourages and benefits from proximity. It's, you know, just as you know, all the goes back through all all history, the centuries, you know, all these kind of examples of cities being the font of innovation. And and you know, you can go through the examples of Renaissance Florence or industrial age Glasgow and places where you just had people together coming up with all manner of of innovations and insights and progress because they were together, because they were feeding off each other. That's a you know very well-known effect. And tech depends on that, on that kind of proximity. Not not just to have your you know big ideas in proximity, but also to be in the proximity to, to capital and to have that venture capitalist who's right there with you in San Francisco who who's you know hearing your pitch at the cocktail party. I mean that that's a real thing. And it's different than the way that you know the manufacturing economy worked where once you came up with a certain innovation, like say the Bessemer steel making process, you could do that just about anywhere. You could do it, you could then take that and do it anywhere where you had the raw materials and the and the raw labor and the transportation to get your product to market. With the tech economy, you have that agglomerating effect where you, you feel like you need to go to Route 128 or to in Boston or or to Silicon Valley or to Seattle. That's why Jeff Bezos picked Seattle. One reason he picked Seattle was that Microsoft was there. And so he knew that he could basically poach that talent um, that was already there. But the but the second, you know. So that's that's sort of a dynamic that's that's just going to be there. But the second part of it is is the lack of antitrust enforcement. We've allowed these giants to grow just to extraordinary size, and to to agree that I think it's hard for us to really comprehend how big these guys have gotten and just how how dominant they've gotten. I was going to say, and Bezos picked DC as his second because he knew that he needed government on his side and to have influence over you know this government town to really be successful. Exactly. So the, the picking him, picking DC was just so is so telling. It's so central to this whole story. And and you know, as it happens, I picked DC as one of my cities to focus on before he did. <laughs> so it's sort of serendipitous. But it, it was the fact that you have this company that could have put their second headquarters with twenty five thousand jobs, billions in investment. They could have put it in a St. Louis or a Cleveland or a Baltimore. But instead, they put it in D.C., which was already, you know, basically the wealthiest metro area in the country. And just that quite simply does not need <laughs> more of these kind of jobs. But it was this ultimate rich get richer example. And D.C. will get worse. It will get more dystopian. And it's because it's not just because Jeff Bezos wanted to be in a place that where he could draw on, you know, talent, the sort of agglomerating effect of, of tech. It's also because... We've allowed this one company to get so large that that in one fell swoop it can have 
you know, just this huge additional kind of pile-on effect in one town. And as you mentioned, one reason he picked DC was not just to be near the the, the kind of tech talent that's already there, but because he wanted to be in the seat of power where the decisions about competition and antitrust are going to be made now. Let me ask you this. You know, the workers who are, you know, a lot of us feel like we we don't have you know, so much control over our careers, you know, but I think, you know, in places like DC and New York and Silicon Valley, you know, there is a feeling where, you know, hey, you know, if we do make our own, you know, fortune, we do have the kind of intellectual capital and the kind of proximity to great ideas. And like you said, in Silicon Valley, capital and all kinds of resources, and, you know, we can affect our, our destiny. But, do workers have, you know, any choice in the matter? Are they kind of helpless, you know, in, in wake of Amazon and other big companies? I mean, you know, journalists, of course, have suffered because of Facebook and, and Google. You know, one in five journalists working today lives in D.C., New York or Los Angeles. And our local news organizations have really declined. So what do, what do workers do in this equation? Well, one of the big decisions that workers face, and, and I get into this in my chapter on rural decline, rural isolation, is they have to decide whether to move. And I tell a story of a of a man who worked at a, a boot factory in Southeast Ohio, in Nelsonville, Ohio. Rocky Boots is actually a pretty well-known brand. And right around 2000, 2001, they, they stopped making Rocky Boots in Nelsonville and shipped it all overseas. And he had to decide what to to do, he was a man who he he would he would put the toes on boots. He worked this very sort of tricky machine that 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 would sort of finish off the toe of a boot and called a toe laster. And he then had to decide what to do with himself. And and he made the decision to to move to Columbus, which has become sort of the the winter city in Ohio, in, in, in that part of the Midwest. And it's an hour away from, from his hometown, from Nelsonville. And he ended up going there and, and, and becoming a truck driver. And he, but he struggled because he just, he so missed, he so missed home. He just did not feel at home in Columbus. And, and he actually ended up going back to, to back to Nelsonville and making this crazy hour long commute every single morning to his truck driving job in Columbus, which involves making a lot of deliveries to Amazon. But what we're seeing around the country is that actually there is fewer people making that kind of move. It's been a, there's been a notable drop off in people, you know, moving to opportunity. And it's it's actually the economists see this as a big problem, and that we're not willing to to sort of move to opportunity the, the way we used to. And but it's understandable. You're less likely to make that move if the cities you're going to go to these places of opportunity have such extraordinarily high housing costs that you can't even conceive of how you're going to kind of break in at, at the sort of entry level there, um, how where you could even afford to live once you got there. And then it's also easy to understand because there's been such a dissolution of the family, of the family unit, partly due to the economic stresses in these towns, that it makes it harder to make that move. I mean, if you think about it, it was you know, it's easier for like for Steinbeck's Joes to make that move from Oklahoma to California than it is for a single mom who right now is in her in her you know struggling small city and relies on her sister or her mom to to give childcare while she's at work. But if she's going to move with her kids to you know to San Francisco or Boston or wherever it might be, who's going to take care of the kids then? So you're more, you're more likely just to stay, even though your your prospects in that 
in, in that hometown have diminished greatly. Yeah. Not to mention the culture shock that you just mentioned, like right. what happens when you go to get a salad for lunch and it's somewhere between 15 and $20 for, for exactly. a salad and you just, you can't even believe it. No, it's just it's the gap, right? It's just a completely different world now to a degree that it, it was, again, we've always had gaps, but they've just gotten much bigger. So obviously the pandemic has exacerbated all of this and accelerated, you know, the necessity of Amazon. You know, the rich have gotten richer during the pandemic. The people who work in intellectual jobs have gotten more secure in their work. And the people who are not in jobs like that are, have really suffered and become unemployed and many more have become food insecure. So what do we see? What do you see on the horizon here? It has made everything so much worse. I mean, I, I had no idea when I started the book a few years ago that it would be this, you know, absurdly and, and necessary, really, that given what's happened this last year, I mean, we cannot, it's just to even grasp how much bigger and more dominant Amazon has become. And the numbers are just mind boggling. It sales up 40% quarter over quarter, you know, from last year, stock up 80%. Bezos's personal wealth, fifty-eight billion more. The just in a in a year, the the workforce up four or five hundred thousand in just a year. And that does not include the truck drivers who who work for contractors. Technically, fifty percent more warehouse space just in a year. The I mean, the extent to which Americans embraced the one-click life in this last year was really, to me, kind of astonishing. Almost the alacrity with which it was embraced, just you know, for Amazon purchases, food deliveries, restaurant deliveries, the whole thing. Arguably, sort of in excess of what even the public health urgings were. The, the extent to which it was embraced is just was astonishing. And so you, yes, you have just the. This has all gotten so much worse. The one area where you know there might be some hope for good effect from the pandemic is is this and there's been a lot of talk about this is the possibility of dispersal that the possibility that people now that remote work you know became more of a reality and accepted way of doing things that people would make it easier for people to to leave the the incredibly expensive winner take all cities for places where they could afford a bigger house and a yard or what have you. And you're seeing some of that, right? You're seeing these moves, the sort of like people leaving San Francisco for greener pastures. But I, I'm not placing too much hope in that having a real rebalancing effect, mainly because to the extent these moves are happening, they seem to be happening mostly to other winter places. They're happening to slightly more affordable, prosperous cities like Austin. They're going to Austin. They're not going to Akron. They're going to the suburbs within their winter region. So, you know, you're seeing a real estate boom in in suburban New York, in Fairfield County, Connecticut, Westchester County, New York, the New Jersey suburbs, or people going to pretty places. They're going to mountain resort towns or, you know, coastal Maine towns or Hudson Valley towns. And so you're seeing some of that happening, but they're not going to Akron. They're not going to, to Rochester or Erie. And so I, that's that'll have a, a limited effect. And, and then you're also seeing very specific decisions made by the giants, where they're they're showing they're doubling down on the winner take all cities. I mean, it's not, of course, Washington got HQ two, but then on top of that, Amazon announced recently that they're going to expand greatly across the across Lake Washington in Bellevue. You have Amazon 
putting several thousand workers in the old, uh, you know, salaried professionals in the old Lord and Taylor headquarters in Manhattan, Facebook, putting uh, thousands of workers in the, the whole new Penn Station post office complex in Manhattan. So there's just very little sign that there that there's any kind of a true um, lasting abandonment of, of the winner-take-all cities by the Giants. And there doesn't really seem to be any thought about moving, you know, an entire Amazon complex or Google complex to, you know, a remote area and setting up like their, you know, they could set up their own campus in their own city, any place in America. They could go to Akron, they could go to Cleveland, they could go to Pittsburgh, they could go to, you know, uh, Youngstown, they could go to, you know, I keep saying Ohio because my wife's from Cleveland, but, you know, they could go to, they could go to Des Moines, Iowa, they could go to, you know, Idaho, and yet they don't. No. There, you know, there's these, there'll be these, these, these kind of feints toward it. There'll, there'll be talk of it. There'll be, there, there definitely, and there are small glimmers of it. You know, there's, oh, there's this constant, you know, talk of, you know, venture capital exploring opportunities in the Midwest and, and, and these various efforts. Main one has been led by Steve Case, you know, former AOL executive and, and JD Vance also was kind of involved in that for a while, trying to get venture capital and interested in the Midwest. But it's no, as far as like really major moves by by the Giants, let's face it, HQ2 was the perfect chance to do that. And it looked like they were, they, they made it look like they were considering it because they actually embraced, you know, welcomed all these bids. It was all a shred. It just it simply was. I mean, barely, not even a single one of, of the 20 finalists for, for HQ2 were one of those, you know, St. Louis, Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, none of them made the top 20. The only question in my mind was whether it was going to be in Northern Virginia where it ended up or in Rockville, Maryland. Right. <laughs> Taxes are lower in Virginia. So that was that was always pretty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I remember when, you know, my my dad's company, which used to be in Silver Spring, had a lease renewal situation. And, and you know, Northern Virginia lured them to their technology corridor because lower taxes, you know, it's, it's just very, you know, people who have been in this area for a long time can see it, could see it yeah. very clearly what, what, right. what the deal was. Alec, this is a fascinating book and thank you for your time today and helping us get to the truth of the matter about, you know, what I think a lot of us think is really the most concerning and pressing issue of our time in the United States right now. Well, thank you. It was a great conversation. Thanks a million. We'll have you back soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 